Wow. Thank you, brother. Good job as always, man. I love singing praise under the Lord Jesus Christ, for He alone is worthy of our praise. Can you say amen to that? What a powerful service already this morning. Brother Jimmy, thank you for that song, sir. I enjoyed that greatly. I too know what it's like to be in the prison, to be in bondage. But I also know what it's like to be washed clean by the blood of Jesus and be forgiven, to be set free. And uh, that song spoke to my heart, brother. Thank you so much. Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn with me uh, to Genesis chapter number 2. And we're going to continue this morning where we left off last week. Last Sunday, we began a brand new series of messages on the family. Let me give you a truth that I know to be real concerning the family. The family is the foundation of the nation. When the family begins to crumble, the nation will soon follow. I believe God created the family first for a reason, because the family was first, so it might be the foundation. And Satan knows this all too well, and it's time that we as the people of God begin to understand that the nation or the family is the foundation of our nation. Now, if we want a more godly nation, I can promise you it starts with a more godly family. Now, how many of you know that all in the world a church is, is a collection of families? When you look around you this morning in these pews, to your right and to your left, frontwards and backwards of you, you're going to see just a collection of families that have met together um, to honor, worship, glorify, and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. A church is nothing more than a collection of families, so it stands to reason that if we have stronger spirit-filled families, we'll have stronger spirit-filled churches. Now, if we have stronger spirit-filled churches, how many of you know we'll have more godly communities? If we have more godly communities, then we'll have more godly cities. If we have more godly cities, then we'll have uh, more godly states. If we have more godly states, we'll have a more godly nation. And if we have a more godly nation, then we'll have a more godly world. But I can promise you, it all begins with the family. Every bit of it. I hear people talk about it all the time. You've probably heard it. I've said it myself. And let me preface my next statement by saying this. As a child of God, we all should be involved in the political process. As a child of God, we never should stick our head in the sand and let the world go by around us. As a child of God, we can and we should be involved in electing our leaders. And as long as we have rights in this country, um, I'm going to do that. How about you? But now let me say something to you. Even though we can make a check mark in the voting booth, There is still a lot going against us in the political process for us to make a real lasting difference. Are you hearing me? It's important, and we certainly want to take part in it. But there's a lot going against us there that we really have no control over. That's why the Apostle Paul said the best thing you can do for your leaders, for those that are in authority over you, is to pray for them. Let me tell you why. Because God can can do what I can't do. The things that I can't fix in the voting booth, God can fix by His power. In His way, in His time. 
according to his purpose. So we are going to take part in the political process. We are certainly going to pray for our leaders. We want to do that. We need to do that. We can do that as American citizens, and that's very important. But let me say something to you folks. If you want to make a real difference, if you want to make a lasting difference, if you want to make an eternal difference, let me tell you where you make it. You make it at home where you live. That's how you're really going to make a difference in this Church in this community, in this city, in this nation, in this world. That, that, that it starts at home. It starts where we are. Let me tell you how I believe that is true and why I believe that is true. Folks, if you've got a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled husband and a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled wife that begin their family and they begin raising up Spirit-filled, blood-bought, born-again children, listen to me now, raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that will change greatly the world around us. It changes everything. How could a family like that change everything they touch? How could a family like that and children like that change our school system? You see, if you've got kids who've been raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they've been raised according to the absolute truth of the Word of God from a loving home. And I stress a loving home. Not a home where they're beat to death with rules and regulations, but a home where they're loved and taught the truth of the Word of God. When you've got that and you send those children off to school, guess what children who are raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord learn? They learn first of all to love God than to love people. They learn that they, they show their love for God by loving people. They learn respect for their fellow man. They learn what the scripture says that, listen, we are to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. See, children like that that are raised in a God-fearing, God-loving, listen, Bible-teaching home, those kids don't bring guns to school and kill 17 people. I can promise you that would change our school system if we start raising up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. How would a family like that, like we're describing, a godly family, how would that family change your workplace? You see, a godly husband who is blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled, a godly wife who is blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled, when they go out into the workplace, let me tell you what they realize. They realize every task that they are given at their workplace, they are to work at that like they're working under the Lord. Not to be men-pleasers, but to be pleasers of God Himself. So that everything we do then becomes an act of worship. How would that change your workforce? How would it change Not only the relationship that employees have to bosses, but bosses have to employees. A boss who not only is in authority over their employees, but love their employees, care for their employees, respect their employees. Do you see how all that works? What if we took the kids from that home and sent them into the workplace? How would that change things? Changes everything. Change your school, change your workplace, and I'll say this even. It will change the political uh, 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 um, uh, landscape of our nation if we do that. Because guess what? When you've got children who are raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, you've got mamas and daddies who are blood-bought, spirit-filled, born-again believers. When they go to the voting booth, let me tell you what they're going to vote for. They're going to vote for the truth that a child is a blessing of God, not a choice. 
And that starts changing everything. Voting your convictions, living out your convictions, making a difference day by day. That's how you change things. That's how you make a real lasting difference in Hamilton, Alabama. At Hamilton Elementary School and Middle School and High School, that's how you make a difference at your workplace, wherever that is. It starts with us. We can make a difference and we should make a difference. If by God's power, we will make a difference if we choose to do life His way. Now let me say something to you folks. If the family is the foundation of a nation, the marriage built on the solid rock, the solid foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of the family. A, a godly marriage is paramount for the family to be what it's supposed to be, what God has created it to be. Now, if you're a single mama or a single dad, we've got a, a message for you, and I want you to know your role is extremely important in the home. But right now, I want to talk about marriage God's way. We need to know what God says concerning the covenant, the institution of marriage. Satan is our enemy. If you believe it, say amen. The scripture says he's our adversary. The adversary is the one who is continually coming against us. Everywhere we turn, everything we do, he's coming against us and trying to destroy what God has done, what God is doing, and what God wants to do in our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus called him the thief in John 10, 10, and he says, the thief comes not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And I can promise you, Satan knows his job, he does his job well, and he knows the importance of the family as it pertains to the nation and to this world, and he knows the importance of marriage as it pertains to the family. So now Satan is attacking marriage like never before. He's doing everything he can to tear down biblical marriage. I never, ever, ever dreamed I would see the day when we would live in America, uh, uh, the, 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 the land that was founded upon the principles of the Word of God, and we would allow same-sex marriage. Now let me say something to you folks. It may be popular today, but popular does not mean right. Now I don't say that because I'm mad at the homosexual. Because I'm not. See, the same grace who has changed me can change them. God's grace is available for us all and all of us need God's grace. But listen to me now, we've got to call right, right, and wrong, wrong, according to God's standard, and same-sex marriage is wrong according to what God says. And again, God's grace is available for every one of us. That's my message. I, I don't like just preaching on judgment, we've got to preach on grace. God's grace is available to us all because we all need it. But I never would have dreamed I'd have seen the day in my lifetime that we allow same-sex marriage in this country. A marriage is being attacked from the outside through uh, the political pundits in Washington that have no business in the marriage business. And marriage is being attacked on the inside from husbands and wives who act hateful toward husbands and wives. Amen. Uh, just the other day, 
reading about Winston Churchill. He's one of my favorite political figures. He's one of my favorite historical figures of anybody, whether it be uh, an American figure or anybody, anybody. I love Winston Churchill. He wasn't a perfect man, but he was a man's man. Winston Churchill was a prime minister of England during World War II, and if not for Winston Churchill, everybody in England would be speaking German right now, probably in America too. He did a lot for the war effort, and uh, he was just a great guy. But he, while he was prime minister in England, he had a lady that was in the English parliament that he always went at it with. Her name, her name was Lady Astor. And they argued continually. And it, it was said once that her and Winston Churchill was arguing about something. And in the middle of their argument, Lady Astor stopped and said, Winston, if you were my husband, I would put strychnine in your morning coffee. And Winston Churchill looked at her without missing a beat and he said, Ma'am, if you were my wife, I'd drink it. <laughs> now, it's sad to say, but I can promise you that is the idea in a lot of marital relationships. They're not for one another. They're against one another. They're not working together. They're trying to do things their own way. And the, the, Jesus said it like this. A house divided against itself will not stand. And so if you're not on the same page, I can promise you it's not going to work like you want it to work, like God wants it to work, and like you both, husband and wife, need it to work. You've got to get on the same page. You've got to get on the same game plan. So let's look at God's plan for marriage. There's three things that I want you to see. I want you to see, first of all, God's plan for marriage, or what I've called His divine design. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. And I want to start uh, in, in, in verse number 18. Look what it says. And Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now let me say something to you. You hear so much about marriage being redefined, the redefinition of marriage. Let me make something very clear to you. Marriage has no need of redefinition. Let me tell you why. Because God, the creator of marriage, has not changed. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. He is immutable. He does not change. And listen to me. If He does not change, His Word does not change. Popular opinions change. Feelings change. But I can promise you, the Word of God will stand when the world's on fire. God's Word doesn't change. And what God's Word says, it means... So marriage needs no new redefinition. And I'll say this, for the Supreme Court of the United States of America who has redefined marriage, they're out of their jurisdiction. They've went way outside their jurisdiction. Not only under the Constitution of the, of the United States of America, they have went from interpreting law uh, to creating law, but also under the authority of the Word of God, which means more than anything else. They're out of their jurisdiction. Marriage does not need redefined. God is the same as He's always been. You can't improve upon perfection. What God says He means. Anything other than what God says marriage is, we can't even call it marriage at all. He's the one who created it and established it. Now, let me give you some truth according to what God's Word says. It says that it wasn't good that man was to be alone, so God created for the man a woman. So God's plan, His divine design for marriage, is one man plus one woman till death do you part. That's God's plan. That's His divine design. That's what 
marriage is supposed to be. So let's look at the man, the man that was in existence in Eden and the creation of the woman to be the helpmate of the man. Look with me first of all in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and watch this now, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I don't know about you, but I see a love story in Genesis 2 and 7. Man is God's most prized possession. Let me tell you how I know that. Because you go back and read in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible's going to talk a lot of, about a lot of things that God said. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Then he divided by his spoken word the light from the darkness day and night. God divided the waters from above and the waters beneath, the water we drink and the water we breathe through the... Uh, water vapor. He divided all that by his spoken word. He created the, uh, the every herb bearing uh, tree and <clears throat> every green thing God created by his spoken word. The fowls of the air and the fish of the sea he created by his spoken word. But when it came to man, the Bible says that he formed man. He took the time to form man of the dust of the ground and then he breathed into man and man became a living soul. First of all, God filled man. Can you say amen? He filled him with his breath. And with the breath of God, God gave man a soul that is eternal. And let me, let me say something to you. You know the only thing in this world that is eternal? Let me tell you what it is. You're looking at him. And I'm looking at you. Now I know this flesh goes back to the dust from whence it came. But really what makes us who we are, that soul, that spirit that God has placed on the inside of us by his breath... Listen to me now. That's going to spend eternity in heaven if you've trusted in Jesus or in hell if you choose to reject Christ. The soul of man is eternal. God filled man. Then what else did he do? Not only did he fill him, he formed him. The Bible says he formed him from the, from the dust of the ground, made him into his image, and man became a living soul. And then God says some things to Adam that we need to take note of. You especially need to take note of it if you're here today and you are a husband and you aspire to be a godly husband or if you are a prospective godly husband, you need to take note of what God says to Adam. He gave Adam a few things that we need to see. And all of these things we need as men to be godly husbands before we need a wife. Watch what he says. Look. He says in verse number 8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. So the first thing that God gave Adam was a place. The place was called Eden. And Eden, if you look it up, the, the definition of Eden in the Hebrew is delightful place. Now what made Eden so delightful? Well, a lot of people would say all the, uh, the, the vegetation that God created, the, the perfect garden that He had there, that made Eden per delightful. Let me say something to you. What really made a Eden a delightful place, a special place, was the presence of God. You see, it was in Eden that Adam met with God. He talked with God as he was talking with his friend. Can you say amen to that? So the first thing a godly husband needs or a prospective godly husband needs is to walk in, be in, live in, and follow the presence of God. Amen. I need it. You need it. We all need it. Young ladies, if you are looking for a young man to spend the rest of your life with, let me tell you who you need to look for. You need to look for the one that's in the presence of God, that spent time with God, and you know you, he's been changed by the power of God. Let me tell you what. 
When a man has truly spent time in God's presence, he'll be exactly what the wife wants and what she needs. Amen? So the first thing that God gave to Adam was a place, and with the place came God's presence. But then he did something else. Look down at verse 15. And the Lord God formed, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to watch this now, dress it and keep it. Not only did he give him a place, but he gave him a purpose. And that purpose was twofold. He gave Adam some work to do. Now, how many of you know if you're going to be a husband that God is pleased with, you need to be about some work? Amen. I'm going to tell you, that needs to be said in this country today. Because a few is paying the way for the many. Amen. And so we need, to, we need to get back to the Word of God and find that God expects a man to work. The Bible says He put him in there with a purpose and He says, I want you to dress the garden. That's work. That's provision. Adam, it is your job to provide in the family. And then He says something else. To keep the garden, to dress it and to keep it. It's the man's purpose not only to provide, but to protect his household. And I'm going to tell you something, young ladies. If you're looking for a prospective husband, if he's not working, keep looking. Oh, Brother Israel, I love him. Well, good. Love him and move on. Let me go ahead and say this. If he ain't walking in the presence of God, let me say this to you. Move on. Oh, Brother Israel, I love him. I had, I had young ladies tell me this before. I believe I can change him. No, you can't. Let me tell you this. The best you're ever going to get from that man is what you get while you're dating. Now, by the power of God, by the grace of God, men have been changed over time. I understand that, but it's few and far between. And along with that comes a lot of heartache. It really does. Believe me, I've seen it too many times. So what I'm telling you is look deep before you leap. Make sure, make sure above everything else that he's walking in the presence of God. He's following hard after the Lord Jesus. Make sure that he realizes his purpose. He's got a good work ethic. Listen, make sure he knows what a man of God is supposed to be. Man, that's so very important. Guys, if we're going to be godly husbands, we need to be doing all this stuff. Right? So God created the man, but then what else did he do? The, the Bible says he put him there in the garden to dress it and to keep it. But he also says something else, verse 17. He gave him um, his presence, the place that came with the presence. Then he gave him a purpose, which was twofold. And then he gave him a practice. Look what he said in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For the day that thou eatest, thereof thou shalt surely die. So what he says, Adam, I expect you to live by my word. I want you to do what I tell you to do and not do what I tell you you shouldn't do. Now, how do you know, ladies, that a man is living up to what God wants him to be? Is he living according to the truth of the word of God? Is he doing what God says he should do and not doing what God says he shouldn't do? God gave Adam a practice. And let me tell you something, men. God has given us a practice and we ought to be performing that daily in our homes. Just like you said this morning, brother, you said it good. Listen to me now. We teach our children, we lead our families, not as much by what we say, but what we do. 
What is your practice? Are you living out your faith where it really matters? That's the man. Let's look at the woman. And the Bible says, down in verse number 18, that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. And verse 19, it says, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam was not find a helpmate for him. Not in all of creation could they find a suitable helpmate for Adam. And so what did God do? Watch. Verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made a woman and brought her unto the man. Now let me say something to you. When God took the bone, He didn't take the bone from Adam's head, did He? Let me tell you why. According to the purpose of God, a woman is not supposed to be above a man. But let me say this now. He didn't take a bone from Adam's foot either, did He? Let me tell you why. According to the Word of God, the purpose of woman is not to be beneath a man. See, what I'm trying to tell you guys, that woman that God has blessed you with, she's not your doormat. She's not your old lady. She's not your maid. She's not any of that. She's not beneath you. She's not less than you. As a matter of fact, you are completely equal. In the home and in Christ, you're equal. So quit acting superior when you're not. Amen. Not in the head to be above and not in the foot to be beneath. But the Bible says he took the rib. Why? Because the purpose of a woman, according to the Word of God, is to be beside the man enjoying life together. Now, if you want a happy marriage, that's where you've got to keep it. Listen to me now. God created man. God created a woman to be together till death do you part. That's God's divine design. Now everybody say this with me. God's man, God's woman, equal, but not same. You need to know that. You're equal. God does not love the man any more than He loves the woman or love the woman any more than He loves the man. You both have purpose and both of those purposes are very valuable to the kingdom of God and to your family. But you are equal, but you are not saying. Satan is fooling this world and making us to believe that men and women are the same and we're not. We're created for a different purpose. And until we get a hold of that, and we'll get a hold of that probably next week. We'll never be what God wants us to be. So that's God's plan for marriage, God's divine design. But I also want to talk to you about God's purpose for marriage, what I've called His divine direction. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 18, He says, It's not good that man should be alone. I want to make for him a helpmate. I want to give you two words. First of all, compliment. How many of you know the word helpmate? That's what it means, to compliment. 
a helpmeet from in, in the in the Jewish language is actually the word used for a hand in a glove. How many of you know a glove complements the hand and a hand complements the glove? And in the marital relationship, a husband complements the wife and a wife complements the husband. You complete one another when it's done God's way. And that's powerful. That is amazing. How do you compliment one another? Two different ways. First of all, physically. A man physically compliments a woman and a woman physically compliments a man. Not going to go any more deeper than that, but go to Genesis chapter 1. Let me just give you two verses of Scripture. Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, watch this now, and replenish the earth. Let me tell you how it's possible that a man and a woman get together physically and they multiply in the earth. Because a woman compliments a man, and a man compliments a woman physically speaking. If you got it, say I got it. Not only do we compliment one another physically, but we also, listen to me now, compliment one another emotionally. Isn't that the truth? Women are more nurturing. They're more emotional. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. Let me tell you why. Because men are usually more rigid. They don't pay attention to their emotions a lot. Matter of fact, a lot of times they they ignore them. They want nothing to do with them. And so, listen to me now. When you bring both of those together, that emotional woman and that rigid man, they complement one another so that God can do in that home what He wants to do. Can you say amen? Amen. And so we complement one another in in emotional ways. Let me give you just a a very quick illustration. I've heard it said that the average woman speaks about 20,000 words a day. 20,000 words. The average man speaks about 7,000 words a day. Would you agree with that? I would say that's probably true. And so guess what happens a lot of times? What, What happens... Listen, we'll come home from work, guys, and our wives will be be at home or they come home from work and when we get there together, they say, how was your day going? And listen, you've already spoken your 7,000 words. (laughs) And so you say, well, my day was fine. Now let me tell you something, brother. Me and you know what we're talking about when I say fine, don't we? I know exactly what you're saying. You know what I'm saying. Nothing major happened, got through the day, everything's all right. Went fine, no big deal. Now, that's not what she wants to hear. I can tell you that ain't what she wants to hear. Right? We've spoken our 7,000. She's still waiting to speak her 20,000. And so she starts talking. And whenever she don't think you're listening to what she's saying, you know what she's going to say? Are you listening to me? Did yours ever say that? Mine does too, all the time. My point is, we're different emotionally. Now let me tell you what we got to do. I've got to extend to her some grace and know that, you know what, she loves me, she wants to talk to me, and she's ready to speak her 20,000 words. That's just who she is, that's what she is. But then she's got to extend me some grace and realize that I just speak about 7,000, I've already spoke out. And we work this thing out together. That's complimenting one another. Can you say amen? amen. That's the hand fitting the glove. 
That's making it work. And all of your problems can be solved if you're willing to complement. Amen. In every area. Not only do I want you to know compliment, but also companionship. He said it's not good that Adam is alone. I want him to have a companion, someone to enjoy life with. And I'm going to tell you something. That's one thing I'm so very thankful for my wife. She's my life partner. She's my best friend. She's the one I enjoy life with. Marriage is an awesome thing. It can be if you do it God's way. It really can. So that's God's divine direction. That's God's, what God wants marriage to go, which way he wants it to go. But now, I don't want you to see God's plan for marriage and God's purpose for marriage, but also you need to see the picture of marriage or God's divine destiny, where he wants us to ultimately get to. Go with me to John chapter 3 and I'm done. John chapter 3, let's look at verse 25. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John, meaning John the Baptist, and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, and he's talking about Jesus there, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizest, and all men come to him. And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride, watch this now, is the bridegroom. So John, speaking of Jesus, he says, Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the groom, and he's the one who has the bride. Now, how many of you know that the, uh, the bride is the church? According to the Word of God. So when John and all of the, other, the rest of the New Testament describes the relationship between Christ and the church, they use it, uh, the, the bride and the bridegroom. So the marital relationship, the picture is this. Marriage is so important. Marriage is so powerful that God uses um, the relationship with Christ and the church to describe what marriage is all about. Isn't that awesome? That means that the bridegroom loves the bride. How did Jesus love the church? Well, He loved her unconditionally. He loved her sacrificially. And guys, guess what? That's how we are called to love our wives. As Christ loved the church, unconditionally and sacrificially. And in the same sense, the wife should love her husband as the church loves Jesus. That's the picture of marriage. That's where we're to get to. That's our divine destiny as far as marriage is concerned. Isn't it cool what God has given us? It's amazing. Everybody stand with me this morning. Now, as I told you last week, all of this truth I'm giving you concerning the family and what God's Word says about it, means nothing to you unless you have accepted Christ as your personal Savior. That is the first step for you to have the marriage and the home God wants you to have and you need to have. That's the first step. So today if you're here and you've not yet trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, today is the day 
of salvation. Don't wait. You come this morning, say, brothers, I need to be saved. If God has pricked your heart sometime during these services and you know you need to be born again, you know you're lost. Listen, folks, he loves you so much he sent his son to die for you. The Bible says if you place your faith in him, you can be saved from a devil's hell and receive abundant life here on this earth. There's nothing like Jesus. He's made a difference in me. He can make a difference in you. So if you need to be saved today, you come. You need to join this church, you come. You just want to come and pray for a lost loved one, a problem in your life, these altars are always open. Listen to me. Don't quench the Spirit during this time of invitation. Whatever God is leading you to do, do it. Do it. Be submissive to the will of God today.